Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Bazell, the Senior VP and CFO at the University of Texas at Austin. Daryl is known for his bold changes resulting in operational excellence in public universities. He also served at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, championing operational excellence in large, complex organizations. And as we know, operational excellence means leaner and stronger. Welcome, Daryl. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, delighted to have you. And as you know, this podcast is all about finding ways for higher ed to become more viable. But underneath the what is the how. And making these big changes to processes and practices, it's very complex, right? A leader can declare something that needs to change, but it isn't so easy for the team to make that change without the cultural and structural supports. So a transformation of operation is required both at the leadership and staff levels. Daryl is here to help us understand the costs of cultural change, such as resource consumption. So, Daryl, you and I have spoke a bit about your background, and you describe yourself as the CFO who doesn't get too hung up on the math, which I absolutely love. Your real passion is operational excellence. So can you tell us a little bit about your leadership journey and particular focus on operational excellence in higher ed? Well, sure. I'm a person who actually started my career out in state government in Wisconsin and spent 18 years in progressively more responsible positions, actually starting out as an analyst and working my way up to running the Department of Natural Resources. And along the way, when I moved into my first management level job at Department of Natural Resources, I was tasked with implementing process improvement within the um, within the agency. I knew nothing about it, but I learned and I became so fascinated with it. I really began to understand the value of it and how it could really drive an institution towards excellence. And so after that 18-year career, I then moved over to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I really got to up the sleeves and practice these skills and really have you know impact. And seven years ago, I found my way to the University of Texas at Austin in a similar role. And, and I should note that I'll be transitioning out of this role in the next several weeks. It's time for me to do something different, perhaps even outside of higher education. So it's just been just a wonderful, wonderful journey. And the, this whole idea of adding value and creating you know, more efficient and responsive processes to really help drive an institution's mission forward has really been at the center of a lot of my work. You've tackled some really complex projects, and your goal has always been to make processes more efficient, particularly at UW-Madison. I know you were starting and, and doing some really big things there. Tell us about a project that seemed almost insurmountable. Well, I'll give you one. I'll tell you how to start it. And I started doing about small projects where we can get some victories under our belt. And the deans took notice. And I attended a dean's council meeting one day. And the dean said, we've been watching what you're doing. Why don't you work on something that actually matters now, Daryl? <laughs> <laughs> and I took the bait. Great. <laughs> Thank said, you. What, you <laughs> what have I been doing for the last couple of years, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so I, they said, what do you, you know, we want you to fix research administration. And for those who are familiar with uh, intensive institutions like University of Wisconsin-Madison that bring, brings in over a billion dollars a year in extramural funds 
Uh, those processes matter. And what the deans told me was that the process that they were using to the point in time where they would apply for grants, to the point in time they could actually start spending on grants, was taking far too long. It was taking over 100 days. And so they said, could you fix that? And so that, that was the big one that I took on. What were the biggest obstacles you faced, right? Because you're dealing with not just a process, but people who move the pieces of the process. So what were your biggest obstacles that you encountered? Yeah, well, the biggest challenge, I always say this jokingly, I always say if it wasn't for people, we can actually get a lot done. But of course, the honest answer is everything you do has to be working with and through people, right? And so that's really the challenge here. And so it was a very complex project where we were taking, I think, 118 days to to, from the day a award letter came in to the day a, a principal investigator could start spending on their grant, they said, you just got to skinny that down. But we discovered things like we were putting all kinds of cost share commitments and proposals without any policy. We were just doing all kinds of things that just weren't adding value. And there wasn't a sense of urgency uh, to get on with spending a grant. And so we embarked on it. It took us more than six months to really fix things. But along the way, we developed that cost share policy. I developed a technological tool that allowed faculty to go in and look at their research grants and model different ways they might spend the grant using real-time downloaded information. And so it took us in some interesting pathways. But at the end of the day, the goal wasn't simply to skinny down you know, the cycle time before someone could start spending on the grant. It was really to help improve confidence in the overall processes. And so as we listened carefully to our research community, they pointed out some of these things like, you know, it's taking us so long that we can't figure out how much money we have to spend. And so I ended up doing more than just getting us to the point we can start spending on the grant. We spent a lot of time after the grant showed up so we can actually then get the grants accomplished, the grant objectives accomplished more efficiently and actually close out grants in ways that we were then spending millions and millions of dollars were just kind of sitting there. We weren't closing out grants, and so we found out ways to get that done. So a lot of policy development along the way. It sounds like you identified money on the table, right? We're leaving money on the table. But walk me through how you actually work with these people and actually study these processes. So I guess I'm asking for your change process to be detailed for us. So our listeners can say, okay, how could I do that in my own institute? Yeah, well, first, of course, we do a little, I always say, joking, a little, little indoctrination. We actually introduce the team to process improvement concepts, and we take them through some fairly a week long of intensive training uh, just to start. And then we do some additional training. And then we have a team that rides along with the, the process improvement team to support them and teach them techniques. And every step of the process, they go through another round of training and support. And so we use essentially kind of a basic process improvement methodology. There's nothing real earth-shattering about what we do. The whole idea is to map your process, um, analyze it, design a new process, identify resources, develop a real strong implementation plan, communicate and execute that plan. And what I like to say is I think of the things I'm describing, the first step and the last step I'm going to mention is the, are the most important. The last step is make what we call maintaining the game. And so at the end of the day, a lot of people think they're done. And once they redesign the process, they want to move on to other things. The whole idea is to develop some robust metrics and monitor what you're doing. And the value of that, of course, is not only can you demonstrate that the changes you made are, in fact, sticking or not, you're now also using this process 
as a way to build out that culture of continuous improvement that's so important. You want staff to have a mindset that on one hand, you want to take a bow and feel good about your work when you've improved the process, but your job in supporting our faculty and our students is to always look for ways to create efficiencies and cost savings and to add value in the way that you care about your work. The first step, though, that, as I mentioned, was about mapping your process. That's so important. We actually required the process team to actually physically walk from one process step to the next to go meet the people who accomplished that task. And that was, they learned so much. There, there are people that were involved in the processes with one another, never met one another. And of course, in general, people tend to acknowledge when processes are not optimized, but they always think the problem is the person who touches the process before me or after me. It's not me. And so this kind of breaks through all of that, you know? And so for me, it's really starting out with and disarming people to help them understand that these processes be better. And the problem aren't the people, it's the process. And then at the very back end, once you've started making the improvement, is really measure and monitor and help maintain that, that improvement that you put in place. So I heard you say a couple of really important points for how to equip your people, which I think is at the heart of cultural change, right? I heard you say that you actually spend a week training the people on process improvement, as well as then assign some trainers, coaches, whatever you want to call them. So you put extra people on this to make sure that it goes smoothly and that not expecting the team to know how to figure this out on their own. Is, did I hear that right? That's right. That's right. So we had two people in particular at Madison. One was a professor in, this, in the School of Business who got so excited when he found out that he actually could make things better at his own institution. He didn't have to go work with the private sector or some other institution. He so excited. And so he did all the formal classroom training. And we had another person who kind of coached the team leader on the process improvement team and just they kind of serve as guardrails, so they they shared information, but they also kind of helped steer and make sure that people were doing the things they needed to do along the way. Yeah, and we're just going to give a shout out to Scott Converse. He was also a guest on my podcast recently, and we know he's the professor you're talking about, making a change. Yes, he's he's wonderful and passionate about this. You also mentioned that you kind of have to have some wins under your belt before you tackle the big stuff. And you, you said it in a joking way, like, okay, now let's do some real good. But tell us about the value of just tackling Maybe this isn't the right phrase, but the low-hanging fruit. Tell me about the value of that. Even if some people don't perceive it as being real work, what does it do for everybody else and for you as a Well, it builds support and momentum. And it's interesting because one of the things I've been, I did with my team here at, at Austin in the past number of weeks, we went back and reread the John Cotter book, Leading Change. And one of the things, of course, a very popular book that's been around for quite a long time, but still relevant. One of the things it talks about is exactly that concept, building momentum and finding some quick wins. You want to do legitimate things, right? You don't want to just make up a project. So I found a wonderful project. I discovered that when someone left the institution, you do Madison, it, they still had access to enterprise technology for an average of a year. And so I was pretty confident I could fix that. You know? And so I did something unusual. I went out and boasted. And that's not my personality. I went and told people, I'm going to make this better because I knew I could. And I actually recruited a faculty member of all disciplines, a woman who was a folklorist, 
took interest in this. And so I put her on the team. Of course, she became our primary spokesperson as we engage faculty, have one faculty member tell another, here's what we're doing, here's what we're up to. And so I had a series of smaller scale projects like that to build confidence, both momentum, to introduce the methodology and see how it worked at the institution. So I was learning along the way, just like you know the staff who were participating. And so it, it was really a valuable time well spent and really created a solid foundation us to move forward and do things that had far greater substantive value. You also mentioned the importance of metrics and data. Tell us which data you focus on when you're trying to identify the problem and make changes. And then which metrics do you find are most valuable to kind of assess and keep the momentum and build that culture of change? Yeah, so there's an awful lot of data collection that goes on up front. And the members of the process improvement team are specifically trained on how to analyze and interpret data and how to develop sound recommendations based on what they're seeing. And so that's one of the most important steps in the process for lots of reasons. But let me give you one very specific one. It's fairly common for someone who's a process owner, and and that's the kind of people we put on the team, people who actually manage the process and have a stake in it. They are intuitively oftentimes have very strong ideas and opinions about how to fix the process, even before you actually did the analysis. Without exception, every team that's gone through the step of actually looking at the data in a non-prejudicial manner has changed their thinking about how they think about the process and what a successful outcome might be. And so it's transformative in that perspective. It forces people to put the data out in front and real information. And so that's so, so important. Metrics are incredibly important, again, particularly as you start moving forward to implement, right? You want to know what data is going to inform our success or not. And so I try to measure at multiple levels. Of course, when you engage in process improvement, there are small process improvement steps and some more significant. You do want to measure those things. Of course, like the big project I talked about, of course, one of the big metrics was, well, what is our cycle time now? We took that 118-day cycle time and skinning it down to less than two weeks. With a little bit of variation, a place like Madison had lots of sub-grants they gave out to other institutions. So that sometimes took a little longer. But so there was some really straightforward measurement on process cycle time. But we also want to look at qualitative kinds of measures and even some broad outcome things. For example, when we did the research administration one, we talked to faculty and talked to them about what success looked like. And so they didn't know it was taking 118 days. They just knew it was taking too long. And so we want to go back to them and as they engage the, pro- the new process in the future, just kind of ask their overall impressions. Try to, in other words, try to develop some quality measures as well. And those are a little more difficult because you, when you try to measure quality, you're always looking at some surrogate measures, right? What are the two or three things that helps us understand how faculty feel about something, right? Versus things that are fairly hard and fast when looking at things like cycle time. And so it's really a mixture and we really look at each project uniquely and figure out what the metrics that tell us are we have things gotten better, both in terms of cycle time, but also again some of the quality kinds of things. And some of this involved, for example, freeing up the time of the research administration staff themselves so they could take on other things, right? Without us adding new people to the unit, right? So those are some of the things we looked at as well. So as I'm hearing you dissect what it takes to make change, I'm hearing that the resources are probably going to be in human capital and probably technology. Tell me about 
the price tag on that? What does it cost to make cultural change using humans, using technology? And if I missed any other costs? Yeah, well, those are the two big ones, right? And as I think about the many projects I took on at Madison, for example, I can only think of a handful that actually took us to a place where we actually added some resources. Because we actually added some new, essentially, I think of a couple situations where we took a process, made it more efficient, but there was a value proposition around doing some work that we hadn't done at all before. And academic leadership has said, well, let's make an investment here. But for the most part, we actually created efficiencies such that, like the research administration example, we actually were able to free up people's time. But the other side of that, though, was the technological side. And virtually every project we took on did have a technological component. And some of them required us to make investments primarily in the time of programmers so we can design new things. I mentioned the idea of developing this tool so our principal investigators can go in and look at their research spending and model and project out various scenarios. We had to then, it was fairly modest, just developing some new tools, but they weren't real costly things. We're not talking seven figures or even six figures in, in, in most cases, but that is something you really need to take a look at and decide what kind of investment you want to make. The other side of this course is one of the things I'm taking on here at Austin is we want to put a new financial system in place, right? That That's a massive fiscal investment, right? And then behind that, we'll redesign process, right, before we put the new technology in. So that's one a major process improvement effort that's in the future of UT Austin that's actually being driven by the desire to move to new technology, right? So you kind of have it the opposite direction. So when you think about what it might take for a culture of continuous improvement, what are the ideal traits of either the organization or the individuals that make up that organization? Yeah, it's something I pre- yeah, something I talk to my staff about all the time because if you think about staff are here to serve, the staff who work in higher education, oftentimes the staff can work in any sector, but we choose higher education because we want to be around great faculty, around great students, the vibrancy of a campus. We like that, right? And so when we are, but we're oftentimes people who aren't noticed unless something's not going well, right? And so in that context, cultural context, how do you get staff coupled with the idea that you never quite arrive? And that really is the concept behind continuous improvement. So you need to find that balance between celebrating the accomplishments that you make, but also particularly using things like maintain the gain as a way to help amplify the need to always think about new ways to make things better. And to reward those things, that's what's really, really important, is to reward those behaviors. And I created an award program to do just that. I've done it at both institutions I, you know, I'm at here. In the larger context, it, that, it's a hard question, particularly for an academic community. They don't want to be settled down with administrative responsibilities themselves. They want staff to operate and do things efficiently, quickly. But selling faculty at times on the investment of the time their staff need to make to engage these processes, those were hard sales at times. And so I would start out, actually start out filling the deans and then finding selective faculty and getting them to be the champions to help with that cultural change was really the approach I took. Okay. Imagine that we have higher ed leaders listening right now and they're getting excited about this idea. Like I can do this. I can be a part of cultural change readiness within my organization. They walk in and they realize, I don't have that culture yet. 
what is a reasonable time frame they could expect? Like they walk in, they start trying to put the trainers and the other structural elements into place. How long does it take? Are we talking yeah. here? Well, of course, you, you've asked two questions here. You've asked kind of the technical question in, in terms of how do you put those processes and people in place to do great work in this space? The cultural question is a longer term question, though, right? You know, it takes it, culture change, as we all know, takes time. And higher education, its calling card is not quick cultural change. And that was probably the biggest understatement I'll make on this podcast. Uh, and so cultural change is always a journey, particularly in higher education, right? And so you might want to develop some markers within your own institution that helps inform you as to whether or not you're making progress or not. For me, some of it were informal measures, these periodic conversations with the dean's council, talking to key faculty, you know, faculty senate leaders, those, those sorts of people, to give me a sense of how they think about it. And of course, on the administrative side, I engage with a business officer across the institution and my staff constantly. And so we talked about it all the time. And you could, we had ways, and, and some of it was measurement, some of it was just really around us trying to get a sense of resistance at times to some of the concepts we, you know, we would try out. But we always thought about the culture change as an ongoing journey, so to speak. But the mechanics of putting some of these processes, of hiring people, training and identifying some initial projects, you could do that in a matter of three to six months easily. And let's go back to this theme of pace, because you and I have spoken previously about the slow pace of academia, and we're like-minded in this. And you have said that you usually ask people the question, why do things take so long? When you ask that question of other people and they start giving you answers, right? Oh, it takes this long because it takes this long because. Tell me about how that pace of academia can affect change. Well, it can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And I think back to my first couple of weeks in higher education. Uh, I remember the state being under tremendous fiscal pressure and the need for institutions to make quick tough decisions, and they didn't do it, quite frankly. And so I started asking questions from the very beginning, and people said, well, maybe we'll deal with it next year, or was it my priority? And so there's a myriad set of reasons why institutions are the way they are, but some of the common answers are it takes longer because oftentimes you have to work through governance, and members of governance feel that's a strength because with governance input, the feeling was you get more longer lasting solutions, although it takes longer to get to. So everyone doesn't see the pace of doing things, the slowness of it as being negative, a negative attribute, right? And the fact that in higher education, I have lots of sayings, and another of my favorite is in higher education, oftentimes 99 to 1 is a tie vote. In other words, there are lots of centers of power, right, and influence and decision making. And so I just think it's really hard at times, it takes a strong commitment starting at the very top of an institution if you're going to see this through for any period of time, both in terms of academic leadership as well as administrative leadership. It has to start there because you have to give permission for people to do this work and create the space and the context for great work to happen and let staff who do the work turn them loose, give them the training, give them the resource they need to do great things, and they'll deliver. But it's up to leadership to really create space for that to happen. 
Uh, so I wish I had a magic bullet answer for every institution, but it's a struggle, quite frankly. So I'm hearing you say it starts at the top. You need support from the top. And maybe additionally, an external driver, maybe there's a federal mandate, maybe there's funding requirements, and that can help kind of speed things up at times too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap up here, Daryl, what's your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution? It could be related to cultural change or it could be related to something else. Well, cultural change, of course, is really important. But cultural change, again, at the end of the day, is a function of having a very clear and focused sense of purpose in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. At UT Austin, we just put a new strategic plan in place. We took a year uh, to put it together. And we're spending a lot of time right now to get people aligned with that new direction, recognizing it will take many years to actually realize the potential of what's in that plan. So for me, it's always about vision and direction and to make sure that vision and direction are relevant, both in terms of where the institution's at and the needs of students and others, right? And of course, lots of folks are going through that reflective moment post-COVID in terms of what are we really here for? How do we want to deliver our mission? And so it's really doing a great job at the very top and setting that direction. And that, that's something every leader listening to this knows, but that is a premium. And they would be surprised at how intently staff listen to those directions. Because staff are looking just for direction. They're looking to attach to what leadership wants. And so a clear articulation of your vision and direction and how staff fit into that is critically important to any sort of process improvement or any effort. That's what creates the context. I really appreciate that point. I'm hearing you say that the staff are not just there, but they are integral to making a successful institution. I tell staff this every day. I talked this morning, I talked to a custodian and told him that he helped enable great research because he goes in every night, cleans up that lab, Make sure it's ready that next day. Everyone makes a contribution. We don't have people to waste. Yeah, that's fantastic. I really appreciate that and totally agree. We could not do our jobs without all of the support staff. So absolutely. All right, Daryl, if people wanted to reach out and connect with you outside of this show, how could they do that? Where would they find you? I do have a LinkedIn page. I don't use as much as I should, but you can go hit go Daryl Bazell and you'll find LinkedIn. I don't, I'd be more than happy if people just sent me an email directly. You know, as I transition, you can always send an email to Daryl at gmail.com. Great. Well, link- it's, it's probably the easiest way to reach. I'll link that in the show notes. Thank you, Daryl, so much for being here today. Thanks so much for the opportunity and best of luck. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business. Oh,